Merry Christmas, everyone. It's, uh, it's always so awesome to be able to be with, uh, amongst the, the believers and with family and, and to be able to worship. And uh, so, much so, so much more so at this time of the year um, when the, just the, the spirit of the season just seems to soften people. And it's just a, an amazing time. And, uh, you know, one of the things that I wanted to start with is I wanted to apologize to all of you. Um, I have been so distracted with all the stuff that's going on in my life. I got here this morning, and by the way, keep uh, uh, Celia in prayer. She's not feeling well, so that's why they're not here. Um, uh, I pulled up, and I see this couple, and uh, like they're, they're in a white car, and they're coming right up behind me. And I'm like, who's this? And then they come around me, and I, oh, that's Celia and uh, Dennis. And I'm thinking to myself, what are they doing here so early? And Dennis comes up, and he goes, hey, are you going to come in through this side of the building? I said, yeah, I was just, that's what I was planning on doing it. I said, what are you guys doing here so early? And he goes, oh, we just came to, you know, we're going to keep uh, Celia away because she's been sick, and we're just going to drop off the food. I'm like, food for what? I'm not kidding. She goes, he goes, for communion. And even then I said, communion? What? I'm like, oh, my gosh, you've got to be kidding me. I've been so distracted uh, with all this going on in my life and uh, just focused on uh, other things. And, uh, and the other thing that kind of threw me off was it's the second week of Advent. So I was already associating the second week, so I didn't even think anything of it. So uh, I want to apologize to you guys. I've just been distracted, and uh, um, I'm trying to find a, another place, and, and Lord willing, I will be able to move. Uh, I may be moving to Springville here real quick. Um, it's there on 9th and 1st East somewhere, hopefully, Lord willing. We'll find out. Uh, I'll know better where I'm at uh, after today, and uh, I'm going to go look at it tomorrow. I kind of just said, I'll take it without looking at it, but uh, we'll see. You know, sometimes you just got to do that and just trust God. And uh, so I was, you know, with that and work and trying to schedule all the stuff from the working stuff, Brian would understand garage doors and getting all the materials you need and all the stuff. And I just had so much on my mind. I've been distracted. But not enough so that I didn't... Uh, um, have a, a, you know, something to say. So it was just, uh, so my apologies, I, I apologize about that, and, and I'm just glad that we're, we're here, and that we want to be here, and we want to worship. It's, uh, I, I just love this time of the year. I'm, I'm one of those Christmas carol freaks. I like, I like the music, because it's so, so much of it was written, not for Christmas, it was to glorify God, and I just get lost in the, in the messages. I mean, just like that last, last song, Oh Holy Night, and just thinking about the whole crazy, obviously non-man-made story of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords coming. And you know, there was a, there was a, um, a time before uh, Jesus came. There was a time um, when there was, um, you know, the Old Testament is filled with God and speaking to His people through His prophets. And uh, then there was this, what's called the intertestamental um, that's a that's a five dollar word, the intertestamental time, and I wanted to do that. I wanted to uh, uh, kind of read to you guys about that because, um, you know, in keeping with Advent, in keeping with what what we went through last week about uh, in uh, Isaiah twenty seven, where Jesus or where the where God is saying that He's going to arrest the uh, serpent, the dragon of old, and the longing and the waiting that we have, we're waiting patiently for him to do that. 
But here there's also the, uh, uh, the waiting that, is, uh, that we're still waiting for, for uh, other things. And we're still in that moment of, of that happening, waiting patiently. And so in keeping with that, it's biblical. It goes all the way back to Genesis. Um, it was almost blew out. Um, and so it's always one of those things where the people of God are always found waiting. We're waiting for something. We're always waiting for something. And hey, my, my life has been like that for the last several weeks. And I know that you guys have been waiting on stuff too. And it's sometimes very hard and difficult. But the season makes it a little bit easier to, to uh, uh, bear. And so when things are unsure, things are uncertain, things are just kind of, you know, chaos and chaotic and so on and so forth, you're just kind of like, you know, a couple times I, I hit my knees hard going, Lord, <laughs> I don't know what's going on here, but I just, I'm just going to try to trust in you and, and I need help with that because I'm not seeing stuff happening and I don't know what's going to happen. And it's just been amazing. But the people uh, of God have waited. <clears throat> Abraham, when you go back to Genesis, you read about Abraham. Abraham's told all these things that are going to happen. And you know what? He just believed God. He said, all right, I believe you. And he just went forward. He didn't get to see it all play out before his eyes. He went to his death believing that what God has said is going to happen. He went, to, he went like that. And, and you know, his, his uh, son Isaac and, and Jacob, they, they didn't get to see all the promises. Moses got to look over the mountain and get, he got to look at the, at, at the whole thing, but he didn't get to step into that promise. And so the people of God are always waiting. And, and really, when, when uh, in Genesis 15, where God is explaining this to Abraham, um, he says, look, I'm going to raise up a people from you, and they're going to be enslaved 400 years. Well, there's, I think it was 483 years, I think is what the scripture says exactly, that they were, they were imprisoned, enslaved. And God would come and set them free. And towards the end of that, they were crying out to, to, uh, um, to Moses, where's the promised deliverer? We need a deliverer. And that's kind of the theme uh, for God's people, always waiting for the deliverer. And, you know, before we, were, before we came to know Christ, we weren't waiting for anything. We were just doing whatever we wanted. We were just ignorant and living the way we wanted to live. But when we come face to face with Christ, we all of a sudden understand that He died and that He rose again on that cross. He rose from the grave. And that as we read in the book of Acts, He was raised up into the heavens. And the angels that stood by the, the men who were standing there on that hill looking with their mouths open and gawking at what was unfolding before their eyes. Here's this risen Lord. The clouds come and gather him, and he's starting to levitate into the air. That's a pretty amazing sight. There wasn't a balloon there. It wasn't no magical trick. It was, and the angels, who know exactly what's going on, said, Hey, why are, you, why are you standing there looking there with your mouths open? The same Jesus, this very same Jesus that you see being lifted up into the heavens in the very same way he's going to return. This very same Jesus. So he's lifted up into the heavens. And there's, a, there's that moment of waiting. They knew that they were going to have to wait. And they were patiently waiting. And even there in the story of Acts, he talks about go and wait so many days in this place, in this city, and wait, and then I'm going to show up. 
It's not easy, especially when you've been with in the, in the presence of Almighty. And so I want to talk a little bit about the intertestamental period, um, if you don't know what that is. So um, the time between the last writings of the Old Testament, that would be the Italian prophet, Malachi. And I, it never gets old for me. I just love that. The Italian prophet. Um, in Malachi, um, the intertestamental, uh, um, or what's known as the intertestamental, or in between the Old and the New Testament, period. And God was silent during that time. And silence is sometimes very uncomfortable. It's very uncomfortable. And imagine God sending um, His Word through people to speak to you, but all of a sudden God just ceases and He's silent. And we go through those periods, don't we? Where we want to hear from God. We want to we feel His presence. We want Him to respond in a certain way in certain situations that we're in. And there seems to be nothing but silence. And it's difficult because He knows what He's doing and we don't. And I can't tell you how many times I've gone to God, Lord, what are you doing? What's going on? I, I'm not, I don't get it. What's, what's happening? So there was this moment, this time, and God was silent. He chose not to speak to His people. Um, between the New Testament period, it lasted from, a, from uh, the prophet Malachi's time, about 400 B.C., to the preaching of John the Baptist at about 25 A.D. So about 425 years roughly. And it could be, you know, give or take some, some years. Because there was no prophetic word from God during the period uh, from Malachi to John, some refer to it as the 400 silent years. The political, religious, social atmosphere of Israel had changed significantly during this period. Much of what happened was predicted by the prophet Daniel. And uh, I don't remember if I put these in your bulletins, but uh, Daniel chapter 2, chapter 7, chapter 8, and chapter 11 kind of talk about some of these things. Um, and imagine that, worshiping God and, and, and knowing that God exists and that you can worship Him and you have the temple and you have all that stuff and all of a sudden, nothing, silence. It's uncomfortable, isn't it? That silence is uncomfortable sometimes. Um, and sometimes God wants us to be silent. You know, there's that, there's that famous passage that says, Be still and know that I am God. That word there in the Hebrew that's used there for be still is stop fighting. Stop fighting me. Stop doing that and just know that I'm God. In other words, believe it. Know it. Um, Israel was under the control of the Persian Empire from about 532 to 332 B.C. You guys didn't know you were going to get a history lesson today, did you? But this is, this is good. This is, uh, we're going someplace with this, and, and that's why I wanted to, to bring it up. The Persians allowed the Jews to practice their religion with little interference. Uh, they were even allowed to rebuild and worship uh, at the temple. You can read about that in 2 Chronicles 36 and uh, in Ezra chapter 1. Um, this span of time included the last hundred years of the Old Testament period and about the first hundred years of the intertestamental, uh, intertestamental period. This time of relative peace and contentment was just the calm before the storm. God was doing something. In His silence, He's always doing something. He's always working. He's continually doing stuff. 
And it wasn't any different here. And prior to the intertestamental, uh, intertestamental period, um, Alexander the Great defeated uh, Darius the Persian, bringing Greek rule to the world. And that's important because when Alexander, uh, because of some of the background of, of, of Alexander and who he studied under, um, who he studied under uh, Aristotle, he was wanting, as a, as a world conqueror, he was wanting to have kind of a one-world system. He wanted Greek culture. He wanted Greek philosophy. He wanted Greek science. He wanted everybody. It was, calling, it was called the Hellenizing of all the peoples. He wanted every place that he had conquered to, have, to basically be on the same page. It's kind of like what we as Christians uh, recommend for and we teach uh, and disciple people to be biblically minded, to have a worldview that is biblical. It's called a biblical worldview. And so when you're looking at the things that are going on in the world and the way that you think about the world and how we interact with the world, it's a biblical worldview. Um, Alexander the Great had the same kind of deal, but he wanted to be Hellenized, wanted to be all Greek so they were all on the same page. And Alexander was a student of Aristotle as well. Uh, he was well-educated in Greek philosophy and politics. Alexander required the Greek culture uh, be uh, promoted in every land that he conquered. As a result, the Hebrew Old Testament was translated into Greek. And so, because it was, the uh, translation of, of the Greek is be, uh, becoming the translation known as the Septuagint. And that's important. Now, uh, I'm going to ask you, I'm going to kind of divert for a minute and just ask you guys, have you ever been reading in the New Testament um, quotes from the Old Testament and you go to find them in the Old Testament and they're slightly different? And have you ever wondered why? This is why. Even Jesus, when he's quoted, he's quoted as, as uh, quoting the Septuagint versions of the Bible. Paul, he quoted the Septuagint. Um, and it is the Greek version of the Old Testament. So they took the Hebrew, they, they uh, translated it into Greek, and they used the Greek language in order to, to uh, show what was going on, to show the Old Testament in, so that everyone could understand it in the Koine uh, Greek of the day. Most of the New Testament references in the Old Testament Scripture use the Septuagint phrasing. And that's why it's slightly different. I remember when I was a, a baby Christian, I used to really struggle with that. I was like, why is this different? And then when I came to know, I'm like, oh, that's why. It's like translated in English. That's why it's sometimes a little bit different. And so we have to go back, and like, like Tim does, we, and like I do, we go and we look at the original languages, and we go, oh, okay, that makes more sense. Now we can have a better grasp of what it was that they were intending. And we also look at the cultures and the history and the peoples and the politics and all that stuff that's, that's being done, and then things make more sense. It's, it brings clarity. So it's the Septuagint uh, phrasing that's uh, quoted in the New Testament. And Alexander did allow religious freedom for the Jews, though he still strongly promoted Greek lifestyles. Uh, this was uh, not a good turn of events for Israel. Because what was the biggest difference between the Greeks and the Hebrews when it came to God? The Hebrews, monotheistic, one God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. To the Greeks, they had many gods. They had a pantheon of gods. This was a big conflict. And, when, and, and it's a big conflict for us, too. 
I can't tell you how many times I've gotten into Facebook de debates and, and uh, arguments with people when they try to lump in all these false gods with God. I'm like, no, no, you, you, I'm not going to let you go there. No way. Um, so I understand this, this difference. Um, it was not a good turn of events for Israel since the Greek culture was very worldly, humanistic, ungodly, polytheistic, and idolatrous. And so they had some big problems. After Alexander died, uh, Judea was ruled by a series of successors uh, culminating in the Seleucid king um, Antiochus Epiphanes. Now he's important in history because he's probably the one that Daniel was speaking of specifically. And later, um, it would be another person that would come in that Jesus was speaking about Daniel, but he was attributing it to another future guy that was going to come. And uh, that was a, a Roman guy. This is a, uh, basically a Greek guy. Antiochus or Antiochus Epiphanes. Antiochus did far more than refuse religious freedom uh, to the Jews. He was very uh, uh, antithetical to Judaism. He hated it. It was cruel. Around 167 B.C., he overthrew the rightful line of the priesthood and desecrated the temple, defiling it with unclean animals and a pagan altar. You can go to Mark uh, chapter 13 and look at that in verse 14. So it's actually noted in our scriptures as history. For a familiar or a similar event to take place in the future, Antiochus' uh, act was the religious equivalent of rape. Spiritual rape. And he was doing it publicly. He was doing it to rub their noses in it. Um, he had raised a statue of Zeus in the temple. And the final straw that broke was his um, on the altar, on the sacred altar in the temple, offering a pig. And that was the final straw. Um, eventually, Jewish resistance to Antiochus led Judas Maccabeus um, and the Hasmoneans restored the rightful priests and rescued the temple. The period of the Maccabean revolt uh, was one of war, violence, and infighting. By the way, that's where they get the... Uh, is my thing... Should I come through here? Okay. Um, okay. So... Um, by the way, this is where we get the, the uh, practice. The Jews uh, the, today, they practice Hanukkah. <laughs> That's where they get this from, from this very thing, the Maccabeans, the things that took place. And when they finally were able to cleanse the uh, temple, um, one of the things that they had to do was they had to have this everlasting light, this menorah that was all lit. And it wasn't just a small little one like you see on tables and on windowsills and things like that on the fireplaces. It was huge. It was huge. And when they went to look for the sacred oil, the consecrated oil, they found enough for what they believed would be for one day until they could get more made. So they're processing, they're doing what they can to make some more, but in the meantime, they're like, this is all we got, we got to use it, so let's do it. And they did it, and it lasted a lot longer. What was it, 12 days or 10 days? I think it was 12. I think it was 12 days, this one day's worth of oil supernaturally kept burning you think there was somebody involved in honoring their willingness to do go that far and to fight? Um, yeah, there was. Um, so around 63 B.C., Pompey of Rome conquered Israel. P 
putting all of Judea under control of the Caesars. This eventually led to Herod being made king of Judea, the false king. He was a supplanter. Um, he was the uh, usurper in chief, <laughs> kind of like we have today. Um, this eventually led to Herod being made king of the, of, uh, uh, by the Roman emperor and senate. This is, n- this is the nation that taxed and controlled the Jews and eventually um, executed the Messiah on a Roman cross. Um, Roman, Greek, and Hebrew cultures were now mixed together in Judea. So we're still talking about the intertestamental period, the time leading up to the time of Jesus. And as you see, they, they, were, they had a freedom for a moment. They had freedom to do what they want. Then all of a sudden, they're, they're brought back into submission again. What does that create in us when we're under oppression and under suppression? Yeah, we're, we're going to rebel, and we want someone to set us free, someone to free us from, from the oppression. So during the span of the Greek and Roman occupations, two important political religious groups emerged in Israel. The Pharisees, they added to the law of Moses through oral tradition and eventually considered their own laws more important than God's. Um, you can look at, uh, it says here, you can look at Mark 7, 1 through 23. While Christ's teaching, and by the way, Jesus didn't commend them for it. No, not at all. Um, while Christ's teaching often agreed with the Pharisees because He came to fulfill the law, not to do away with it, um, He railed against their hollow legalism and lack of compassion. The Sadducees represented the aristocrats and the wealthy. The Sadducees, who wielded power through the Sanhedrin, rejected all but the Mosaic books of the Old Testament. They refused to believe in resurrection and were generally shadows of the Greeks whom they greatly admired. The events of the intertestamental period set the stage for Christ. See, God was busy working behind the scenes, setting everything up. And it was that perfect time. I I liked what R.C. Sproul, I was listening to him earlier this week, and I liked what he had to say. It's as if all of history was set up for this moment. The plan of redemption wasn't just started at that moment. It had been started before the world began. And so that's what we're looking at here. Everything was being pointed down to this one little laser-focused time and place in this little tiny country. It's just a sliver of a land about the size of New Jersey. And everything in world history goes boils down to this one moment, right? Um, both the Jews and pagans from other nations were becoming dissatisfied with religion. The pagans were beginning to question the validity of polytheism. Romans, uh, Romans and Greeks were drawn from their mythologies towards the Hebrew scriptures. Imagine that. Now easily accessible in Greek and La- or Latin. So they have three languages they can read it in. You think that wasn't on purpose? God's doing something. He's always doing something. Um, The Jews, however, were despondent. Once again, they were conquered, oppressed, polluted. Hope was running low. Faith was even lower. They were convinced that now the only thing that could save them and their faith was the appearance of the Messiah. They really started to focus on, is it time for Messiah? We need a Messiah. 
We need the one that God has promised. Everything was leading them to this mindset, to this heart. And they were all unified in that wanting, that desire. They were looking for the appearance of one. They were waiting for an advent. They were adventing. They were, they were waiting patiently in the midst of their suffering, in the midst of oppression, in the midst of all these things that were going on and, and being taxed unfairly and all these things. They were waiting. It was an advent. They were patiently waiting. Some of them not so patiently. There was a lot of uprisings. There was a lot of rebellion. There was a lot of things. And a lot of people were killed. Um, <clears throat> not only were the people primed and ready for the Messiah, but God was moving in other ways as well. The Romans. One of the things that the Romans were famous for is building. Infrastructure. Roads. And that made it easy for the dissemination of the gospel. The Romans had built roads to aid the spread of the gospel. Everyone understood a common language. Remember Alexander the Great wanting everybody to be of one language, one culture, one mind, one philosophy? God was busy doing stuff. He doesn't waste anything. He's working behind the scenes on every single thing. And it all has a purpose. None of it has, has a, a waste. It's totally used for His purpose, to glorify God. The language of the New Testament, and there was a fair amount of peace and freedom to travel, further aiding the dissemination of the gospel. The New Testament tells the story of how hope came, not only for the Jews, but for the entire world. Hallelujah. Christ's fulfillment of the prophecy was anticipated and recognized by many who sought Him. By the way, at the same time, Jesus chastised those, His people, who didn't recognize His time. And He told them they were going to pay the price because they did not recognize the time of their visitation. That's an important thing to grasp. And let me tell you why. There's something expected of us as believers. We're expected to know certain things. When Jesus comes, if He comes in our time... It says that he's going to come like a thief in the night in uh, First or Second Thessalonians and, and another place, and I think in uh, uh, First Corinthians. But here's the thing. You've got to keep reading. People always stop right there that it's going to be like a thief in the night. Nobody's going to know. That's not what Paul teaches. You know that? Are you aware of that? Paul says, but not like you. It's going to come like a thief on the night for those who are going to be judged. He said, but not for you. You're to know. We're responsible to know, to be knowledgeable of the signs and the things that are going on around us. That's our responsibility. Okay, That's on us. It should not catch us like a thief in the night for those who are believers. I know that's contrary to a lot of things that people teach, but that's what the Bible actually says. If you just keep reading, he says, but not you. You're believers because I've taught you this already. So you're to be aware of certain things. The story of the Roman centurion, the wise man, and the Pharisee Nicodemus show us how Jesus was recognized as the Messiah by those from several different cultures. And that's important because that's weaving in this, this idea of the, uh, uh, the Messiah. Remember the story that we're focused on, Christmas time, the Magi, the scientists of the day. They were reading the signs. They were following this star. 
You know, I hope and pray, I hope and pray that when we're on the other side and when, you know, the end of all things has come, I hope we can get to see what was going on with that star. Because I'm, I'm just deeply curious about this. Like, how does this work? Um, sometimes when I'm going home at night, there's a singular star that's up there above the mountains, the ochres, and I just watch that thing the whole way and thinking, it kind of seems like it's following me, but it's, it's getting further and further away from my point of view. It's like, how did this thing lead them continually to this one place? It's interesting. So the 400 years of, sol- of silence of the intertestamental period were broken by the greatest story ever told, the gospel of Jesus Christ. So that's what we're looking at when we're looking at uh, Christmas time. One of the things that we forget was that moment, those years, hundreds of years of silence from God. Then all of a sudden, you have this next scene. A knight comes and the, the uh, Caesar Augustus makes a decree. Hey, you got to go back to your hometown. you got to go register. Everything was working for this one moment in history. It's incredible when you think about all the things that took place that night and all the things that were necessary in order for that to happen. For God to come, God the Son from all eternity, to enter into our existence, to enter into His own creation. Uh, And I mean, think about it in these terms. The psalmist says, You are enthroned in the heavens, O Lord, and the heavens cannot contain you. The earth is your footstool. I mean, it's just mind-blowing. It's not big enough to hold God, and yet He steps in to creation. And none, even more wonder of wonders, He takes on a body of flesh of a man, like you and I. I mean, it's just mind-blowing when you think about what took place and why we should rejoice. And we should rejoice because even though sometimes we end up waiting, we wait patiently, God will always, He will always have an answer. He will always, all the things that He promises, He will make it come to fruition. He always has those things um, happening and working behind the scenes. Uh, Sorry for the interruption there. I almost forgot that. See, I'm so distracted. Um, but um, this is, this is the, the thing to keep in mind, the, the waiting. And I want to read, and I've, I've spent a lot of time talking about that, but the history is important. And we should know that because it's actual history. That's how it worked out. God uses world history in order to make what He's going to do for His people, to His people, and through His people. He uses all of history for that. He uses all the world. He uses every resource that He has. He's the one who makes the resources. He's the one that makes things happen. So He's the one that uses it. And it's always for His glory. In every instance, it was all for His glory. So I want to focus a little bit on Luke chapter 2. We, we were there earlier, uh, or we were in Luke chapter 1. I want to focus on, on some of the people who have waited. Uh, I think about... Uh, Hannah, uh, Samuel's mother. And I think about how she 
was in, in Samuel, she was, she was desirous of, of, uh, of wanting a child. And in her late ages, in her, 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 her later age, you know, she's, she's an older woman, okay? She's just older. And she's praying at the temple, and the, 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 the priest there, he assumes that she's drunk because she's mumbling. And we've seen people on the streets like that, right? They're all drugged out. They're t- I see them all, all over the place. They're talking to I don't know who, but they're there in their mind. And so he's thinking that's kind of, man, this girl, she's stoned out of her brain. You know, she's out here of mind. Um, but what's she doing? She's waiting on God. She's crying out to God. And eventually he does give her an answer. And he gives her what she wanted, a child. And she does exactly what she said she was going to do. You give me this child, and I'm going to give him away. I'm going to give him to you. I'm going to give him to you to serve your purposes. And she does that. Now, she gets to interact with him all her life, and all his life for the most part, but she's still very, she honors that. There's this amazing thing. She's waiting patiently. So here in Luke 2, I want to uh, jump down to uh, verse 21. In Luke 2, uh, um, chapter 2, verse 21, it says that when eight days were completed before his circumcision, um, his name was then called Jesus. By the way, that's the name that the, the angel uh, before had given him. There's two names that are associated with the story that the angel said, this is what you're going to call these people. You're going to call his name John. And with Jesus, he says, you shall name him Jesus, Yeshua. Jesus, it is literally the form of Joshua, Joshua, which is a form of God is salvation or God saves. That's what it actually means. His name is literally God saves. And what did he come to do? In Matthew, the angel told uh, Joseph, who was betrothed to Mary, and in a dream, he says, this is what's going to happen. You can take her as your wife. She's not been violated. What is in her womb has been come by the uh, has been brought forth by the Holy Spirit. Marry her, and you shall call his name Jesus, and he will come for one purpose. And I love that. He will come to save his people. He will come to save his people. His name is salvation. He is salvation. Um, and so here, uh, when the days, uh, in verse 22, when the days for their purification, that was part of the law, they were unclean for a certain amount of time, then they would have to come, they would have to do all the, the priestly things to get uh, right, and they would purify themselves according to the law of Moses were completed. They brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male that opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. So that's what they were doing. They were doing what they were supposed to. And to offer a sacrifice according uh, to what was said in the law of the Lord. A pair of turtle doves and two young pigeons. This is actually the uh, um, sacrifice for somebody who was poor. So that's why we draw the conclusion they were probably not wealthy people. They were poor. Verse 25, And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was a righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. 
Now, this was before the Holy Spirit was to come and He would inhabit His people. Um, so He came in a certain way in, in accordance with the Old Testament in the same way. The Holy Spirit would descend upon them and they would prophesy. And so this is no different. This is still part of the Old Testament thing that is going on. This is the last little vestiges of it. Um, Simeon, this man was righteous, devout, looking for the consolation of Israel. By the way, the consolation of Israel was somebody who has delivered them, who would console them, who would succor them and keep them and lead them. Um, not astray, but back to God. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Now, that would be kind of tough to have that brought to your attention. Hey, you're not going to die until you see the consolation of Israel. But on the other hand, what an amazing thing. I mean, you could live like you wanted. You could live like Superman. I ain't going to die until I see this, so can't nothing happen to me. Praise God. And you know, it's kind of that way now if you are in Christ. That's what you've been promised. Your days are numbered. You're not going to die until your days come up. And even when you do die, you ain't going to die. I didn't contradict myself. I didn't say something that's nonsensical. It just sounds like it. But that's what Jesus said. I am the resurrection and the life. He that believes in me will live to eternal life. And even if he dies, yet shall he live. He's saying that you'll never die. You're never really going to taste death. It'll be one moment here, then the next moment, boom. And it's going to happen just enough. Whew. Um, so he came, uh, uh, he's been told that he will not die until he see the Lord's Christ. Kurias, Christos. That's what he's waiting for. He's patiently waiting for it. He's a priest and he's been promised this by God. Now that's really awesome too, because it's like you get to the end of your days and you start getting older. And I saw a lady, it was uh, kind of cute, the the lady was uh, uh, now 98 years old, and they were, you know, it was on YouTube or something, and, and uh, they were celebrating her birthday, and they had her blow out the candle, and she goes, I hope to God this is the last one. <laughs> She's 98 years old. She's like, I'm done with this. I'm sick of this. I want to go. Uh, she was tired. Well, he's old in his age, and he's He's looking forward to the consolation because it had been revealed to him that he would not die until he saw. He would see the, 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 the coming king, the one that was promised from of old. Imagine all the times he thought and thought about that. Is this one him? Is this one him? Is that one him? Is this the one? And it says in verse 27, And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to carry out for him the custom of the law. So he's going to be circumcised, he's going to be purified, and he's going to be blessed by the, uh, speaking of the candle, he's going to be blessed by the priest. They're going to be blessed by the priest. Then he took him into his arms and blessed God. It's that word again, blessed. And said. So imagine that. I mean... You're waiting for your Savior. You're waiting for your King, the one who's going to set you free, going to set all your people free. And now you're holding Him in your arms, the King of the universe, the Creator, little baby, poopy diapers and everything, just like us. He probably spit up on his mom. 
He was human just like you and I. And the king of the universe is there in his hands. He's looking at the face of God. Waiting patiently, he's been waiting. And he gets to see and hold and touch and smell. And he's doing this, and the Spirit of the Lord is upon him. In verse 9, he says, Now, Lord, thou dost let thy bondservant depart. He knew it in an instant. He recognized. Spirit was upon him, and he's like, Yes, this is the one. He's rejoicing. Now, Lord, thou dost let thy bondservant depart in peace, according to thy word. For my eyes have seen thy salvation, which thou hast prepared in the presence of all peoples. He didn't do it hiding behind the scenes. He brought him forth for all to see. A light of revelation to the Gentiles. Praise God. He's recognizing he's not just for the Jews. He's not just for the people of that time. He's for all people everywhere. That's the good news of Christmas. Joy to the world. The Lord has come. Let all receive her king. The light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of thy people Israel. He is the glory. He's our glory. Last week's name. He is the glory. God glorifies Himself in all of these things. This is what Christmas is really all about. Waiting. There is waiting. And Simeon blessed them. Oh, excuse me, verse 33. And his father and mother were amazed at the things which were being said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to, his mo- to, to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel for a sign to be opposed. Imagine that, king of the universe, coming into our existence. He's going to be opposed. He's still opposed today. We know this. Um, We experience sometimes this, very true, trying to express to someone the truth of Jesus and who he is. He's rejected. He's rejected continuously. We're rejected because of the message that we bring sometimes. This child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel and for a sign to be opposed. And a sword will pierce even your own soul to the end that the thoughts for many, from many hearts may be revealed. This is what it's about, waiting. They've been waiting. He's now here. And all of a sudden... One of the things that we learn from God and from Scripture is God doesn't always act the way that we think He should. It's frustrating. It's sometimes debilitating because we're like, I can't figure out what you're doing here. And yet He's doing whatever He wants. And He does it according to His good pleasure. And He does it according to His good will and kind intention towards us. He does, and He works out all things according to His own purposes and for His own pleasure. That's the God that we serve. And even here, He's working these things behind the scenes. Um, Before we finish here, as as we um, go into uh, our uh, communion, 
which is what we're, well, the reason why we enjoy communion, the reason why we do this is because we remember Him. Jesus did come, and even unbelievers acknowledge this. I was listening to a, um, a talk that, was, uh, that I was just listening to yesterday with, with Bart Ehrman, who claimed to be a Christian at one time. Now he's claiming to be an atheist, an anti-theist, really. He's rejecting God now. But there's one thing that he won't leave alone. It's a bone that anti-theists hate. He says there's no doubt in history that Jesus was crucified, Jesus of Nazareth. I have no doubt in my mind that that took place. He doubts the resurrection and all those other things. But what does this mean for us? Well, it means that even the unbeliever knows that God is real and that God has done what He's said He's doing in history. They have to admit it. They can't deny it. And when they're denying it, they're being dishonest. Or they're being ignorant or they're being dumb on purpose. However you want to look at it. And so we're told to wait. And it's a good thing to wait on the Lord. Here he waited for the Lord and when he saw it, he got to rejoice. And sometimes we wait. We wait in misery. We wait in pain. We wait in suffering. We wait. And we trust what God is saying. Okay, God, I don't get it. I don't understand it. I'm going through stuff. And I don't want to go through it, but I'll go through it. I'll wait. And even if you don't give me the answer in my lifetime, even if you don't answer the way that I think, I want you to. Even if you don't, it's okay because I believe you. I will trust in you. I want to read a few verses that talk about this waiting. In Psalm 33, 18 through 21, Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear Him. Here's the key. Those who fear Him. His eye is on you. On those who hope for His loving kindness. In suffering, in waiting, we can wait with His loving, knowing that His loving kindness is sure. What I read in in, uh, Lamentations 3 a few weeks ago, the loving kindnesses of the Lord indeed never cease. His mercies are new every morning. His compassions never fail. Great is your faithfulness. And it says here to deliver. This is what they're waiting. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear Him, on those who hope for His loving kindness, to deliver their soul from death and to keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield, for our heart rejoices in Him because we trust in His holy name. Commit your way in Psalm 37. And by the way, I would recommend, highly recommend, read Psalm 37, the whole thing. I'm just going to read a little snippet. There are so many things in there about waiting on God. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in Him. He will do it. He will bring forth your righteousness as light and your judgment as the noonday. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for Him. Do not fret because of Him who prospers in His way. That's for me. (laughs) That's, That's for me right there. I fret because of those who prosper in their way. And, uh, 
It says, do not fret because of him who prospers in his way, because of the man who carries out wicked schemes. Cease from anger and forsake wrath. Do not fret. It leads only to evil doing. For evil doing will be cut off. The evildoers will be cut off. And there's our promise. They will be dealt with. But those who wait for the Lord, they will inherit the land. Praise God. One of these days, that's going to be our outcome. We wait. We patiently wait. We persevere. It's called the perseverance of the saints. We persevere in all the oppression and all the things. And we wait on Him patiently. And just like the people of that time waited and waited, 400 years of silence, we wait. Sometimes in silence. Sometimes it seems like the heavens are bronze and you can't get through. Sometimes it seems like God has turned His back and turned His face away from you. Sometimes it seems like God is punishing you and and pouring out His wrath upon you. But sometimes in those moments we realize when we stop focusing on all the chaos, we stop focusing on all the pain, we stop focusing on all the suffering, we stop focusing on all the sickness, we stop focusing on all the wickedness and evil, and we remember God is good. God is good. My God has dealt kindly with me, is what we remember. And we fear Him and we thank Him and we praise Him in the midst of those things. And that's what He's given us in communion, is that we can commune with Him. We can partake with Him. We can participate and remember Him in in what He has done in accordance with what we're told here in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. In verse 23, this is Paul speaking to the Corinthians, and this is what he says. He says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And it kind of reminds me of that song that, that we sang last week. Hallelujah Christmas. That my sin would drive the nails in you. It's kind of what it reminds me of. We betrayed God. We rebelled against Him. And it was our sin that drove those nails. It was our rebellion that caused that whipping. It was our rebellion that caused Him to be mocked and spit upon. It was our sin that He took on that cross so that we wouldn't have to bear it. That's what He did on our behalf. On the night that He was betrayed, He took bread. And when He had given thanks, He broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And that's what we're going to do in a moment. We're going to sing a song, and we're going to just take a moment to focus and examine ourselves. It says in verse 25, And in the same way he took the cup also after supper. The third cup, by the way. There was more than one cup. And it's significant in the, uh, the supper. The third cup had a lot of meaning to it. I'll let you guys look at that. I'll just tease you with that. It says, this cup, and this is 
you know, praise God for this. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. The old covenant has been met. The old covenant has been fulfilled. The old covenant we don't have to keep because there's a new covenant. Jesus kept it. Jesus fulfilled it. Jesus met it. Every single bit of it so that we don't have to. We are to live as holy because He is holy and because we fear Him, but we don't have to keep it. We've been set free. This is going to sound like a contradiction again. We've been set free to be able to keep it, where before we couldn't. And the law is really all about one thing. It's about love. Loving the Lord our God with all our hearts, all our soul, and all our mind, and all our strength. And loving our neighbor as ourselves. It's all about love. It's not about doing. It's about love. And when we love, we automatically begin to pour out those things because His love flows through us. And we become that living water that flows to those who are thirsty. We become that living bread to those who are hungry. We become the light to those who are stumbling and who have walked in darkness and have seen a great light. We become that to those people through Christ. This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. And that's why we do that. That's why I talk about the cross every week. Because we're to proclaim His death. He died on our behalf. He came, this little baby in the manger, so that we might have life. And He came to give His life in exchange for ours. He took our place. Hallelujah. He says, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself. So let him eat the bread and drink the cup. For he who eats and drinks uh, eats and drinks judgment to himself. For if he does not judge the body rightly, for this reason many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep. And that, when it says they're sleep, a number sleep, means they're taking a dirt nap. That's the kind of sleep they're talking about. They're six feet under. Okay? For he who eats or drinks, drinks judgment to himself, and if he does not judge the body rightly, for this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number sleep. But if we judge ourselves rightly, we should not be judged. Hallelujah. And remember, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Let me say that again. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You are there. That is the best news. That's what the news is. There's no longer any condemnation. We're right before God because of what Jesus has done. And so we celebrate and we get to commune with Him as only He has taught us. And so that's what communion is about. Christmas is about communing, being a part of it, welcoming Him, remembering Him, and all that He has done, and all that He is doing, and all that He's going to do. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Our Father and God and King, our Savior, Creator, Sustainer, Provider,
Lord, how we need you. We cry out to you now, Lord, thanking you for your goodness and grace, for the word that you have given to us. We thank you for that which is written, that we can rely upon, and that we can know you through. We thank you that we can commune, and that we can remember you. We thank you that you are here in spirit, and that you are moving amongst us in a glorious way. We praise you, we bless you, we thank you that we can remember you in this way and partake along with the apostles and those who partook with you at that time. We enter into that and we thank you that on the night that you were betrayed that you took, you broke bread and you gave thanks and that you proclaimed that there's a new covenant and that you had fulfilled the old one. We thank you that we can partake and remember you in this way. We praise you, we bless you, that you cause people to be born again. We thank you, Lord, that we once walked in darkness, but now we see a great light. And that light is the light of the world. And his glory we behold. And blessed are we, for you are good. We pray that you would just have your way amongst us and do as you will and do as you please. In Jesus' holy name, amen.